welcome to part two of this special two-part episode of Into the Impossible, featuring Brian Keating's fascinating, in-depth discussion with physicist and prolific author, Lawrence Krauss. Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. I wanted to just read to you a statement that I got from Kamran Vafa when he was on the show. Mm -hmm. I asked him, I said, Kamran, you know, one of the knocks against string theory is that it uh, it doesn't have, um, you know, it doesn't make predictions that are testable and therefore uh, cannot be cannot be falsified. And then he went into the black hole entropy that it can be reproduced to show the degrees of freedom that Beckenstein in, in a two dimensional black hole. Yeah. In mm -hmm. a two dimensional black hole, which, which we don't live in, by the way. Exactly. Right. So I, I mentioned that. And then he said, okay, so I said, come on, come on. Then he said, um, so for example, if you take an electron, it has a mass. And if you compute the mass of the electron in the fundamental units of physics, which is Planck mass, it's a very tiny mass in Planck mass, something on the order of 10 to the minus 23. It's a very tiny number. So you say, great. Do we have any prediction that the electron mass should have been this small without knowing that there is an electron, just by knowing that there is electric charge? And by knowing that there is dark energy in the universe, you find a bound on the electron mass from string theory. You found that it's bounded from, on the upper end by 10 to the minus 1 and above 10 to the minus 31 on the lower end. Okay, so Lawrence, what, what, do, you, what do you make of that? What would you give Kamran if he takes, your, takes a, a – I mean, he's basically saying the electron mass is prediction. It could have been 10 to the minus 32 uh, of the, of the uh, Planck mass, but it's not. It's between 10 to the minus 31 and 10 to the minus 1. Um, a big range, but it's a prediction. Well, it could be well, wrong. It could be falsified. I don't think it's well. Look, it, I don't think it's worth getting hung up because the theory is just so premature that I'm not worried about its predictions because I don't think. I mean, what he's giving is just a dimensional analysis argument, which is fine. It's yeah. basically, if if you have a, if you have the if you have the string coupling constant of the Planck mass, ultimately, if you combine things, you're going to get some numbers. What saddens so it doesn't bother me that string theory hasn't. I just think it's such an early, it, it, it's not, it, it's not a well-defined theory yet, I think. And I mean, it's got a lot of great ideas and maybe it'll relate to the real universe at some point. Um, it, 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 it's, as, as I like to say, and this is a joke of Frank's, you know, it's promising, but it's been promising and promising for a long time. But, like um, nuclear fusion. <laughs> but, 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 but what really disappointed me the most, to tell you the truth is the one thing, if string theory had predicted a cosmological constant, it would have been great. But in fact, not only did it not predict a cosmological constant, but generally yeah. it has a hard time even existing with one and, and um, without a negative one anyway. And, um, yeah. and so, so, and that's the one I, I'm personally convinced that we won't understand the energy of empty space until we have a quantum theory of gravity. I suspect they're intimately involved with each other. Uh, and, and so the one thing that I would want a purported theory of quantum gravity to tell me something about would be the cosmological constant. Mm -hmm. And as far as I can tell, neither string theory nor, for that matter, loop quantum gravity have have had much of anything to say about them, and certainly didn't predict them. Generally, right. find that it, that uh, generally string theory would tell would suggest that what we're seeing now is a temporary aberration of what will ultimately be a negative uh, cosmological constant. A anyway. When uh, I see a proliferation of, of anti-string theory, not your work necessarily, books by Peter White, Sabina yeah. Hassenfelder. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But, I, um, I, but let me make it clear. I don't think I've ever 
yeah, my book, Hiding in the Mirror, is anything. If anything, it's a, um, I came, I wrote that book to praise string theory, not to bury it. <laughs> <laughs> right. So, but, but you do hear uh, these cries that string theory is effectively sucking the oxygen out of physics departments and that I don't it know. It used to be more. I think it was, it was in the, it's certainly, there's no doubt it was in the 1990s. Mm-hmm. It was, but I think the, re, you know what happens? It's the wonderful thing about rats in a sinking ship is that, <laughs> is that, um, is the, the minute, the minute there was the possibility of new experimental data, either at the Large Hadron Collider or in the universe, what you saw, I mean, there's a certain subgroup that were lost forever to physics. And I used to see them when I was at Caltech. I gave a colloquium once at Caltech. And, and it, was my, it was when Ed Witten was being courted there. And, and as I say, mm-hmm. he was a friend of mine and we had lunch. And then right before the colloquium, I was with another friend of mine, uh, Mark Wise. And, and uh, mm-hmm. we were walking towards building and all of the young string theorists were leaving. And and it was right before my cloakum, and Mark said they never come to physics cloakum because for them physics is, you know, just it's just something way below the Planck scale, and it's not of interest. It's not. It's like you know, it's like botany, and, and so for them, everything that was uh, relevant for what you would normally call physics was not interesting. There was a subclass of people who felt that way that you know, if it was below the Planck scale, it really wasn't interesting. But what happened is for the bulk of for the many for many young people who were not lost. The minute there was experimental evidence or of anything interesting, everyone started to think about that. So you had string theorists start thinking about cosmology or 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 or, or the Higgs particle or uh, other things. That, and so, um, so, but it did for a while skew seriously. And as chair of a physics department at that time, I was very aware of it. It ser- seriously skewed <clears throat> the appointment of young faculty, and 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 the. And the ability of young people to get get jobs in physics who weren't string theorists, <clears throat> and that was sad. That was uh, unfortunate. Mm. Again, you're so, lucky that you didn't weren't in that generation. That's right. Um, but again, then I have uh, people like uh, Michio Kaku coming on and saying no, because I asked him. I was like, where in string theory does one find the muon G minus two anomaly? Where do I find the Large Hadron Collider beauty? results, these anomalies and so forth. Where do I find Hubble tension? And he says, it's all there. And I said, what do you mean? He says, you just have to tell me the vacuum state. And I say, well, why is it my job as an experimentalist to tell you what the vacuum state is of your theory? And yet on the same token, the swampland, et cetera, it, it seems hopeless, Lawrence. And and I'm wondering why is it that, that you get so much attention from people like you know, Kaku with the God equation and Stephen Hawking even talking about M theory as if it's proven, as if all physicists accept it. Because it sounds profound and everyone wants the next best thing, then, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it, after Einstein. And, and, and Stephen, I think, I mean, to his credit, he may have talked about those things, but, but his work was generally, you know, calculational and involved things that you might be able to, at least in principle, predict. Um, but and and relevant, obviously, black hole evaporation is profoundly important. Um, I I frankly do have a problem with Michel Kaku, and he knows it. I've been I've done it many years ago. I did this radio program. We've been on programs together, but I think he he inappropriately he misleads people about string theory, and I don't and I and I have and I and I don't uh, I, I you know I don't look whenever I'm talking about science. I'm sure I lead to misconceptions to people, but I don't knowingly me- lead to misconceptions. I try not to knowingly swindle people. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm not saying he's a swindler, but I, I believe that that people, that knowingly statements are made that are 
that I think are not justified. Uh, and 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 it is true. He's but he's absolutely right in principle. If string theory were, were a theory of 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 uh, of space and time, then obviously, in some level, and a theory and a complete theory that from which all the forces of nature were derivable, then obviously, it's in there. Because, you know, if it really were a theory of all, all the forces of nature, then all the things we measure must be a part of that. Mm-hmm. So so it's a tautology almost. So, of course, right. in principle, it's there. But we don't. But first of all, A, we don't know how to do it. But more importantly than that, we don't know if it is. We don't know if, it, if this incredibly fascinating area of mathematical physics is a fundamental description of our universe or whether it whether it's a mathematical tool that allows us to understand many other areas in physics and that's the most important question i don't really care about at this point whether it makes predictions that you could test because i i think that's we're way away from that the question Mm -hmm. we really have to address is, is that there's no evidence yet that it is a theory that 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 string theory describes uh, uh, our universe. Right. Okay. So I guess I, and I, I want to, we're going to go off of uh, Kaku in a second, but, mm-hmm. um, but I did ask him one thing. I said, if you were the, um, you know, president of the National Science Foundation, you have a portfolio and you have to balance your portfolio. How would you say the portfolio should be balanced given that there is, you know, tremendous o- overinvestment to some people's minds into string theory and, you know, dramatic underinvestment in new models like Stephen Wolfram's model. Um, uh, Eric Weinstein has a geometric unity proposal, uh, and uh, and and of course twister theory and so forth. So, how do you balance the proposal? Now, I made you, you know, uh, director of the NSF. What do you do, Lawrence? You, it's fine to say let a thousand flowers bloom, as yeah. uh, as the you know individual once said. Um, but how do you balance a portfolio? And, and, well, and that, given that, that, what you, well, I mean, look, you do is peer review. I think you, you, you know, and you have to look. First of all, by the way, it doesn't really matter because it's in the 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 costs of of string theory. Or I mean, by the way, compared to the other things you said, string theory is on a wholly different level compared to the other ideas you talked about. I mean, it's not really fair to put string theory in the level of those other other left field things you talked about. But string theory is really well motivated from a fundamental direction, but they're they're let they're the xeroxing costs associated with the Large Hadron Collider. I mean, they're just in the noise. You could, you know, they're. In fact, by the way, that's the way it's normally done. When I was at Harvard, the theory group. The only reason the theory group was funded was because they were combined with the experimental particle group so that basically the they were getting the the the, the breadcrumbs that were that was being thrown out by the because because experiments are so expensive theory itself is pretty cheap but nevertheless what you have to do at some level and uh, is broadly have groups within within physics assess what are more likely or less likely and i do think it's really important to fund a variety of options, but as 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 the editor and the publisher of the New York Times once said, and I've quoted. Actually, he wasn't the first one to say this, but I've since learned. But he used to say, um, as Salzberger once said, yeah. "I like to keep an open mind, but not so open that my brains fall out." Right. Ultimately, you you you. It's reasonable to fund things, but you've got it. But but they but they have to fall within some range range of that the community views as realistic, well motivated, well defined, and um. 
And I don't think, um, so when it comes to particle physics, um, particle theory, there was a, while, a time when, 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 um, when I think string theory is probably getting the line share of money and people who weren't doing string theory complained, but to be fair, it was so attractive that you generally had the most cap- many, the most capable young theorists working on it. Mm-hmm. And so it was attractive enough to drive. I mean, these people were voting with their feet. So look, it, you know, it's always a hard thing. It's, you're, it's like asking it. First of all, it's not a zero sum game, right? It's like when people say, should we, should we fund the Large Hadron Collider or should we fund erasing poverty? And, and the point is that it's not one or the other, okay? And if it were, we'd be in a really sad situation. Um, it's not one or... And so I think that what you can do is you can... Um, if there's a lot of interesting intellectual work going, you might get expand the pot. Or if there isn't, you might contract it. And, and frankly... There have been times over the last 25 years when I've often thought we sp- probably are funding uh, particle theory um, uh, too much because there wasn't much of interest going on in that area. And it's an attractive nuisance in that there aren't, you know, there's as few spots to become faculty in the high energy in any academic. We had a search last year before COVID. We had 400 applicants for one yeah, position. I I mean, I, yeah, I mean, well, listen, I, I remember fair, when the yeah. Supernatural Super Collider was canceled. I, that was the year before I became... Chair, the yeah. chairman at Case, and I was, I moved there because I was given thirteen new faculty slots to build a department, and mm-hmm. and I'm very proud of what what it did yeah. there. But but within within three weeks, I got two hundred applications from from experimentalists from the from the superconducting supercollider, all of whom were really good experimentalists. Many of whom would stake their careers on this, had left their jobs at tenure jobs at other institutions, and now had no options. And yeah. I couldn't hire any of them because the point mm-hmm. was, you know, what can they, what are they, what are they going to work on? You know, right. I mean, I, if I were, it was different. I was trying to grow a department and I had to hire people who were going to have an impact on an emerging field because you had to be very strategic there. If I were Harvard, I could always hire an extra um, experimentalist in that regard because I didn't need it to, 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 yeah. to, but, but it's, it, there is, there are so few people, as you say, who get jobs in universities and I have concerns about how about how that process goes one the main thing ultimately and i this was my guide when i was a of a, a, a chair and so i didn't care if someone was a string theorist or not whenever i've been on a search committee my feeling is you always hire the best person namely the most capable intellect who may be doing something now but you know, the point is physics evolves so even if they're what they're working on now is interesting in three years it may not be so you hire someone who you think will be able to move with the field and continue to be a, a force. And, there, and and so I think that's ultimately because I believe in meritocracy. I think mm-hmm. academia should be a meritocracy. That should be the only requirement that comes in, ultimately that comes down to, to things. And then, mm-hmm. and then you, it doesn't really matter the field that people are working in. It's how it's their quality of their intellect in a way that matters more than, than anything else. So uh, we'll get to meritocracy and uh, and science and elsewhere. I just want to remind people I'm talking with Dr. Lawrence Krauss, author of many books, including his most recent book, which we have yet to get to, The Physics <laughs> of Climate Change, uh, A Universe from Nothing, 
the greatest story ever told. Uh, uh, Adam, all, all these physics of Star Trek. He is the proprietor of the Origins uh, podcast, which is uh, a must listen to. I've poached many of his guests. He's also uh, a director, founder of the Origins Project Foundation, uh, which I'll put links to in the show notes. Um, but the last thing I want to say just before we move from uh, really the hard science, the big picture questions, I, I've started to think a lot, Lawrence, about you know how I can rekindle a little bit of that you know a milli or a nano Galileo uh, and, and and recreate what he called the assayer il saggiatore, and and that was to like what does an assayer do? An assayer doesn't own any gold, but he has a rock. And he takes what is purported to be gold and he rubs it on the rock. And in so doing, he provides value of untold, potentially untold wealth, or he crushes the dreams of people that thought that they got this gold from their you know, great uncle or whatever. So that was what he did. That's what an assayer does. I'm wondering, are we missing things now? People tell me to test my theory. Um, you know, Stephen Wolfram is on my podcast. He's talking about uh, bronchial space and this this uh, bronchial, not like your chest, but branch, branching space and 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 sort of how you could test it. And it would require, you know, it could actually be falsified, but it requires, you know, advanced Lisa or what and I, I just I was thinking. And I said to him, I said, you know, what if you tell me you need this future collider? Okay, there's no target. There's nothing natural, but bigger is always better. And uh, what if I said to you like 10 years ago, I'm going to give you something that can crash two, um, two atoms, two nuclei together, and they each have 10 to the 58th neutrons, and I'm going to crash them together at half the speed of light. Would that test your theory of everything? In other words, we have phenomenal, you know, energy scales accessible to us. Why aren't we, are we missing something? You know, Newton, as you talk about in, uh, in a, uh, you know, um, sorry, the, um, the greatest story ever told, you talk about how he was right uh, about uh, light, you know, he proved that light going through two prisms was not diminished any more than going through one prism, right? And I was thinking he proved the color theory of light in, in a lot of ways, and that is a quantum at some level. It would be something that Feynman would would have recommended. In other words, a low, what low energy phenomena are we perhaps overlooking because we always have this bigger, better, greater, farther, faster, higher well, I, energy frontier to pursue? Well, look, you're not alone, and I, I don't think. Um, a lot of people, and in particular myself, and I mentioned the work over the years that Frank Wilczek and I, when we worked together, have been worked on, have been looking at ways to use. There are two extremes of physics. There's extreme. There's the energy frontier, mm -hmm. but there's also the sensitivity frontier. Mm. And in the atomic physics domain, sensitivities are are achievable now with 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 not. You could call them tabletop. They're not really tabletop, but they're. They're not LHC scale experiments, but they, most of them occupy a single room or two. And you can achieve sensitivities looking for things at one part in 10 to the 18th, sometimes 10 to the 20th. And so the question, of course, is there's two ways to detect new physics, at a, new fundamental physics. And by fundamental, I mean associated with the fundamental forces of nature. Not, you know, I don't want to make, have this big argument about whether, you know, what's fundamental. But no, I agree. Yeah. But one is by probing directly those scales and because of quantum mechanics to probe, physicists don't build <clears throat> bigger machines because they want to spend money. You need, quantum mechanics says the more energy you have, the smaller the, the, the regime you can resolve with your microscope. It's just that simple. Mm -hmm. the, 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 if you want to think of it, the smaller the wavelength of your probe, and the wavelength goes inversely with energy, um, the more you can probe 
matter on smaller and smaller scales. So we have to build bigger accelerators to to detect things on smaller scales. But the other way that phenomena at small scales can be manifested is by very, very weak effects at macroscopic scales. And so you a, a very interesting, and it's an area that's growing all the time, is to look at ways that we might use ultra-sensitive experiments to probe for very rare processes or very weak effects that might might be new. And so, you know, that that's a that's a, a vibrant area of physics and one which I've run a meeting, several meetings about, one which I've worked on. I, the, one of the last papers I wrote was on exactly using lasers, uh, atomic clocks, to try and probe for something called axions um, because I'm fascinated. I, I actually came up with that idea. What I, I was giving as... As you know, because I came to uh, UCSD to to give this math lecture, I've I, for many years I gave uh, you know more public lectures at, at a number of meetings, and this one was a metrology meeting in France, and they wanted a a cultural talk on cosmology, if you wish, and so I was there, mm-hmm. and then I and then after my big talk, which opened the meeting, I I listened to the talks and of course a lot of it was was highly technical but i told myself i you know i i I should try and make the most of this and and it was there when i began to appreciate the incredible power of metrology and 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 atomic clocks and 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 to be able to probe things so so that i think you know and the point is you never know if you're missing something right the all you can do is try and and this is what I was going to say to you about the, the National Science Foundation. And I know the director of the National Science Foundation, he was, worked with me at my old university. Um, ultimately, what people don't realize, a theory, we talk all about these theories, but physics is an empirical science. All of science is empirical. And what should drive the science is experiments, not theory. And generally, that's what does happen. So that's where the money should generally go. The amount of money that should go into theory should always be a small factor compared to the amount of money that goes to experiment. And so my feeling has always been that you should do the experiments you can do. And whenever you have come up with a new technique, it's worth exploring it because you never know where it's going to lead. And people always say, what to me, what's the next big thing? And I always say the same thing. If I knew, I'd be doing it, right? Uh, okay, so so we obviously are missing things because that's why experiments surprise us, and that's why we. And and I as I often say, I'm 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 surprised every day, and I'm and some days I'm surprised that I'm not surprised um, when I hear new new results. So so we keep opening up new windows on the universe, and that will guide our understanding of the universe. Not generally, not what what theorists do. Theorists provide, uh, you know, a framework, and there, there are clear counterexamples where theory has has changed our worldview. Galileo was an example, and obviously Einstein was another. But but generally, it works the other way around, and people don't realize that. And and one thing I've you know been curious about is why are there so many uh, popular science popularizations, popularizers, however you want to say it, uh, dating back to you know to Newton and to Einstein. And, uh, you know, I actually have one doll. So I've got Carl Sagan. Here's Carl Sagan. Here's mm-hmm. Galileo. You saw him. Yeah. I'm not got, sure Newton uh, was a popularizer, by the way. Newton was detested the pop- public. But yeah, anyway, he hated it. Yeah, anyway. But I have had one, one, I do have one finger puppet. And here's Einstein over here. I think I have that same set. Okay, go yeah, on. Yeah. But then, but then I have one that's been a guest on my podcast and that's, that's no. Okay, there we go. That's great. So, yeah, maybe we'll get a Krauss doll. But, um, but I want to ask you, why as long as you don't so many- start sticking needles in it, I'm fine. 
Okay. Well, they go on my thumb. So <laughs> yeah, okay. I, yeah. Anyway. Um, I, I don't want to even go there, but go on. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, exactly. Um, the question I have is, why are so many, why is there such a surfeit of, of popularizers of theoretical physics? You know, Brian Greene, you, Lisa Randall, Jan Levin, uh, Katie Free. You know, there's so, so many, and there's almost nobody who's an experimentalist like me. And Because I'm theory is sexy. Up. Let's face it, theory is sexier. It, it really is. is because you can. Mm-hmm. It's the hype, no, but it's also the tradition. I mean, the, of the of the lone scientist sitting in the room late at night thinking about the universe, and 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 it's so easy to make hypotheses about grand hypotheses. Where if you're an experimentalist, you actually have to do something. And the devil, if you're an experimentalist, is in the details, as you well know. Yeah, with with uh, right. with the experiments you've worked on, and 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 so and that's not what tends to get press because the press generally, you know, just reproduce the press releases of the of of the people writing books and and um and and that doesn't get to capture in people's imaginations and it's sad because i actually have tried in my books very carefully to to point out the experimental basis of things because it really is the heart of science but but i think it's just that it's the reason i became a theorist it's sexier mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Uh, you know i was an experimentalist i worked at, i mean when i was an undergraduate i worked in in, in in summers in 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 projects that have high energy projects and it, you know i'd spend and then during the year i had part-time jobs and i'd spend eight months trying to fix a what was then you know a, a, what's called a spark chamber and you know and it just i mean the tri- things that would occupy me for a long time that would take forever to do almost nothing and it certainly turned me off but that's mm-hmm. but i admire tremendously now now that i'm older I certainly almost feel wistful that I, I, because I find, I mean, I've been now involved. I've sent for the last 30 years, I've proposed experiments, many of which are being done. Um, and I'm wistful. And for the first time, I'm actually part of an experimental collaboration, but, but I'm almost wistful that I'm not exper- experimentalist because the difference between a theorist and an experimentalist is that an experimentalist actually does something. <laughs> I mean, has something to show for what they've done. Whereas a theorist has, has, you know, just has ideas and there's no priority really on ideas, and though we always try and try and have that, and 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 it's just it, it, uh, my respect for experiment has increased exponentially from the time I graduated. In fact, when I was to be fair, when I was an undergraduate, I did two degrees, one in mm-hmm. mathematics and one yeah. in physics. The reason I did that at my university was it got me out of an experimental <laughs> class. <laughs> okay, that's I mean it wasn't the only reason. It was to me it seemed the most challenging option at the university I was at. And I, so I, I decided to do it, but, but one of the many virtues of it was that I didn't, I, I was, I, I opted out of the experimental class and that, mm. and, and, and sadly now I wish, um, not that I wish I'd done it, but, but I, I think people don't appreciate because we all talk about it. I mean, you and I have been talking about that because these ideas are fascinating and there's something that people can relate to without knowing details of statistics or diodes or, I mean, and, and, and so, um, even though there's incredible intellectual baggage that really is required to get any kind of adequate understanding of theory, you can build it up in a way that, but I think to, to really understand that the guts of an experiment, it requires a lot more intellectual baggage that very few people are willing to, to, to yeah. carry to get there. My late uh, father used to say that uh, to be an experimentalist, you actually have to know the theory 
at least as well as a beginning grad student or so, you don't have to come up with new theories. That's not a requirement that I put on my experimental graduate students, but you should at least be conser- you know, conversant in it unless you just want to be a technician. There's nothing wrong with technicians. We need them. Uh, but, but if you're not going to think about the big picture, and I wonder, Lawrence, is that I find, you know, I make a joke. People are like, why are you doing this podcast? You know, is it just to make the tons of money that YouTube sends us every month for yeah, our creator? Yeah, for- yeah. No, I, you know, and I say, actually, why I'm doing it is because uh, on my day job, which is to you know co-construct the Simon's Ray, the Simon's Observatory, it is uh, usually involving people I have to talk to. In other words, it's people you know, and it's and it's very long term. I mean, we won't complete the observatory, the array. You know, it takes decade you know to complete these experiments. They go on for decades. But a podcast is kind of instant gratification. I, I can talk to people I want to talk to, not the you know plumber that's you know telling me that there's this leak in this Freon thing and at seventeen thousand feet, and I might have to get on a plane. But instead, it's you know people I want to talk to, and not that I don't you know like those people. It's just I it's a it's a drain. Uh, there's a lot of uh, experimental uh, physics is sitting around bored and then terrified when something doesn't work. Uh, but uh, <laughs> but I wonder, is that partially why you started your podcast? Is that to get the instant gratification of talking to some of the world's leading intellectual lights? Well, I... look, podcast I've been doing. I, I well, first of all, I'm fortunate because my field allows me instant gratification. Right? I, mm-hmm. I mean, there are two types of theorists. There's some theorists who work on one thing for thirty years, and I don't want to put that down anyway because it, it's very important. But I've always I've worked in everything from geophysics to 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 you know to to black hole physics to to some mathematical physics to you know and so for me I love you know I get instant gratification by learning a new thing and and working on it and then and then I go away which you know which which actually I've talked to Frank about this strategically is not so good because when you write the first paper on a subject by the end in twenty years that it no it's never referenced anymore because everyone's always unless you continue to write papers on but that doesn't matter. And so so I, I already get a lot of as a theorist I can get quick gratification that way. Mm-hmm. But it's more no, it's it's deeper in the sense that um first of all I've been doing this for a long time. Uh with my with even before the I, I created the Origins project at the last university, even at at um e- even a case I'd built up an effort to try and bring different people from different areas together because i find that that symbiotic relationship between knowledge at all levels interesting but then i expanded it i mean then it was still mostly what you would call academics um but 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 then what at, at what what for me was the driving factor is that i believe science is part of our culture not that i believe it science is part of our culture it should be more integrated in our culture and that means it's cultural and therefore for me it's a matter of bringing people from all aspects of culture together, and I'm fortunate, and so and and you've been fortunate by poaching, but um, but I'm fortunate that for some reason or other I realized it when I was doing the origins thing that I had a, a a very broad rolodex, if you want to call it that, of people of significance in in Hollywood, in in different areas of of, of academics, and in, in even politics and journalism. It just happened over time because I've been involved in a long time. It just, it wasn't any planning. And so I thought, uh, we discovered, I ran large panels, but then we discovered that one-on-one dialogues were fascinating. And I did one with, uh, early on with Chomsky, but I, Alan Alda, and I did one with uh, uh, um, um, uh, Johnny Depp and, and others, and that, that people are fascinated by being a fly in the wall and as one of my public, one of my uh, my my um, my editors once said, people want to go to the horse's mouth, and so what they want to hear are the people that they want to hear from, 
And so my feeling was if I could get them together, but not just some superficial thing, to create a dialogue that would be different, that would be the kind of thing they could people couldn't hear about everything that that person was thinking and put in perspective, and which is why I tried to prepare so much for all of my the, the podcast. That 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 would be something that people might like, and it would also, frankly, archivally serve a very useful purpose because in the future people will have that to, to work from. But 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 it, but but you're right in one sense, and this is the sense that I think all people don't realize why people do science. Most things I do because I do because I want because they make me happy, right? Mm. And most mm-hmm. scientists aren't scientists because they want to save the world, even if they're saving the world. It's because it makes them happy. It, they like what they're doing, and the, and you're absolutely right. The podcast gave me an excuse to go around the world and have in-depth dialogues with people who I may have had as friends generally, but in-depth dialogues that I wouldn't have had otherwise. And and so really, in some sense, of course, it's for me, even though I think it provides a more useful purpose. Yeah. So some of the uh, eight other Nobel Prize winning guests that weren't influenced by you that I've had on my show, for the same reason, I've written a new book that's coming out in September, just distilling those conversations into chunks of actionable information. It's called Think Like a Nobel Prize Winner, because I felt like it would be a shame if, A, as you said, there wasn't archived. Mm-hmm. B, the transcripts are kind of, you know, meandering, yeah, and, yeah. and it's hard to keep, as you know, as a host uh, and a guest, um, and when I'm mm-hmm. meandering just now, uh, you're getting an in-depth class on that. But uh, but I wanted to distill it into chunks of actionable information, and and some of the things were really inspired by things that surprised me from the guests. In other words, I talked to Barry Barish and I said, mm-hmm. Barry, you know, I, one of my audience members asked me, asked me, you know, like, uh, do you ever have the imposter syndrome ever in your past life? And he said, uh, what are you talking about my past life? I feel it m- now more yeah. than ever. Yeah, sure. And uh, a vignette that you and David Gross spoke about last week uh, on your podcast, when they win their Nobel prizes, they have to go up and sign this ledger mm-hmm. that says, yes, I received my, my medallion. You know, Barry yeah. left us here in yeah, the couch yeah, yeah. There when he was visiting, but, um, but, uh, you have to sign this ledger and it's impossible not to be curious about who came before you. And he looks through it. He sees fine men. Okay. Miriam Mayer, mm-hmm. we'll get to in a second. Um, and then he gets to this guy, he gets to, to, mm-hmm. to Albert. And he said, I've never felt more dramatically inadequacy, um, uselessness and, and imposter syndrome. Well, and I said, mm-hmm. yeah, go ahead. Uh, well, no, why don't you finish? And then, and then I'll jump in. Well, I said, I'm, you know what? I did some research, Barry. Uh, and that's actually what inspired me to actually take his words and put it into a book with, along with the eight other laureates, mm-hmm. including Frank Shelley and many others. But, um, but I said, you know what, uh, Barry, you know, who else had imposter syndrome? Einstein. He thought Newton was the greatest uh, intellect, the greatest contributor, Lawrence, to Western culture. Einstein called Newton. And you know who Newton, of course, uh, worshipped more than anybody and before whom felt the imposter syndrome, Lawrence? Do you know who that was? What scientist that was? Was it Galileo? I don't know. (laughs) No, Jesus Christ. Yeah, I was going to say Jesus Christ. Yeah, I was going to say because he didn't... Yeah, I should have known the answer because there's no human that... No real human that that Newton would have felt subservient to in any way. Um, so uh, but, yeah, I want to, I want to get that, uh, get, you were going to say something when I, uh, well, uh look, meandered uh, on, uh, in it, look, it's easy to, uh, how can I say this in a way that's, that's, that sounds right. If you ever achieve a level of fame at some level and celebrity and, and for one reason or another, because of whatever I've done at some level, I have, have you realize that you 
the, and this is what I think a lot of Nobel laureates have to come to grips with because until they win the Nobel Prize, they, I mean, in, the commu- in their own community, they're well known, but they don't, they're not well known outside their community. And then, and then frankly, they're not that well known outside their community afterwards, <laughs> is a little blip. But, but um, you have to not believe the press clippings. Because yeah. every press clipping, there's not, I mean, if you're a theory, if when I, when I go give a talk or when I see anyone, anyone else, they're always presented as, you know, when I see a blurb in the book, as the next Einstein, the next blah, 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 blah. And, you're, you, and, and it is really easy when that's happening. Because you know you're not mm-hmm. to get that imposter syndrome. You know, you know hey, the, 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 I'm being described as something I know I'm not. And maybe I'm just a complete fraud anyway and i mean i think i i think anyone i certainly have felt that many times and mm-hmm. people say rightly but but um um <laughs> but uh uh i think it's if if you don't probably then you suffer from the dunning kruger syndrome because mm-hmm. because um i mean it's part of the problem i mean you you, you know you yeah uh, uh, how can i say this again to you losing the Nobel Prize. The, the, there's this fixation on Nobel Prizes in the first book and the second book that, that is is unfortunate in a way because, first of all, I've known almost every Nobel Prize winner in physics over my time anyway, and 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 in many other fields as well. I probably know 50 Nobel Prize winners, maybe more. Um, but, you know, it's it's just it's just a prize, and suddenly it instills this stuff, and, and it, you know, it it's for work, It's it, and, and the person, you suddenly, the, the person who won the Nobel Prize is seen as some is elevated to some level when it's the work and the person may or may not be worthy of, of, of being elevated to that level. They did some work. It may have been an accident. It may have been other things. Right. Look and, at Fritz Haber. Look yeah, at, yeah, look well, at there's lots of, Whatever. Yeah. But, but, um, so, so we, we, as, 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 uh, as a society, the public tends to label Nobel laureates as if there's something special. Oh, and, I think it's a form of religion. It's a form of almost. Yeah. Yeah. Religion. But, but in, in general, it's, a, the, it, it's, it's really recognizing work. And you know, that was one thing speaking of philosophy, because I used to read a lot of philosophy mm-hmm. and ancient history when I was younger. Mm-hmm. And I almost went when I almost took a Rhodes scholarship at Oxford, I was going to do physics and philosophy. Thankfully I didn't do that. But, um, but uh, I, um, the the ancient Greeks and Romans were really quite different. They separated the work from the artist, and so they they revered the work, but they but they didn't revere the artist. They would basically say, you know, well, let, you know, they thought it was a divine inspiration, and that this person had had ha- more or less it just happened to be the vessel of the gods. But but uh, but it was like, yeah, big deal. And and it's, and we've gone the opposite direction in some yes. sense, and and it's a cult of a cult of celebrity we live in, and and uh, and so. We, because of that, uh, I would suspect that many people, um, after getting great adulation and recognition, most people of who who are who are at all self-critical wonder, you know, ask themselves, am I, you know, or quickly realize they shouldn't believe their plus clippings. Yeah. Yeah, except for Frank. When I talked to Frank, I said, "Did you ever have the imposter syndrome?" He said, "No." <laughs> it was basically uh, the opposite. And yeah, uh, yeah well, Frank, expecting- I've known, yeah, known him for yeah, four he, years. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he had to uh, wait for you know thirty something years until he actually received it. And that, yeah, yeah, I thought yeah. that would be excruciating, but yeah, I mean, part it was of the book excruciating. Not- Let me tell you, I don't know yeah. what Frank said, but I've lived with it. Okay, every year, for, I'm sorry, Frank. Yeah, every year, Frank and I would have this call because yeah. I, we were extremely close friends, and he, I think, wouldn't talk to many people about it. It's hard if you think it's it, 
it's hard. And what you shouldn't, and the point is you shouldn't fixate on it, but it becomes harder and harder. I was very, very happy, not only because the work deserved it, and I actually was a nominator for the Nobel Prize, and that was one of the things I had nominated. But in fact, everyone I ever nominated for the Nobel Prize, by the way, won one. But anyway, Ooh, wow. um, not that, but it may, it may have taken 10 years for that to happen. But mm-hmm. but um, um, it, it, re- it relieved a kind of tension that could have, that for some people, it could it could really hurt their them as scientists and 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 and, and their personalities. No, that's um, that's what I wanted to dispel when I, in my first book. You know, it was written from the perspective of someone who was told when he was hired that he was hired because he thought they the chairman whose father uh, Nikolai Basov uh-huh. had won the nineteen sixty four Nobel Prize. Uh-huh. Uh, for the laser. He said, we hired you and we were only going to give you tenure if we think you're on a short track to a Nobel Prize. And even after Bicep 2, people say things like this. And I just think it's it's it's, it's a charade in, in a sense because, you know, again, we should venerate the people. I actually think that the people are more impressive than the institution. A lot of, a lot of the prestige of the Nobel Prize has come because of the people that have been awarded it. And I think it's interesting when you think about how, uh, you know, how society is sort of venerating this. And, and by the way, you mentioned the Dunning-Kruger effect. I just want to point out that I am, you know, perhaps the world's greatest expert in the Dunning-Kruger effect because I studied <laughs> it for a little bit. Um, oh, okay. I want to turn out to meritocracy, but, which will... Well, which but let, will, let me let me just oh, yeah. say one thing. I think... Yeah. I, I, I don't want to focus on Nobel Prize too much, but I've been strongly involved in, 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 in following it and, in, as I say, nominating and then at the, at the Nobel Prize ceremonies Mm-hmm. Um, and, and one of the things that amazes me, uh, no, it doesn't amaze me. It's the reason the other, all the other, there's a profusion of prizes. And I remember when Fred Cavley talked to me early on and was at the Nobel ceremonies with me once when he was trying to emulate it with his Cavley prizes, I said, Fred, mm-hmm. don't waste your money. It's never going to be a Nobel prize. But the the difference is, and it's a waste of time, but these people are willing to do it, that they spend a full year, they spend a year, the minute the day the Nobel Prize announced, they meet the next day, starting for the next year. And yeah. what's amazing is they could have blown it so many times, and generally have. Now there are a million people who deserve the Nobel Prize who didn't get it, but there aren't that many people who got it who didn't deserve it. There are some, and there by that some. I mean not as people, but I meant the no. but the work. And they do yeah. an incredible job of vetting it, which is why all these other prizes are so subjective and and peripheral. They they just sort of throw names in a hat and they, and they, and it, and that's why one of the many reasons I just think there are far, far too many prizes in science, yeah. but, um, but no, I, I will say that. that they, they've generally done a good job and it is surprising on the whole, given that the work is what wins the prize, not the person that remarkably, but not completely, but remarkably a large number of people who won the Nobel prize are also really good scientists. Not everyone. Yeah, but no, that's but, true. but but it's amazing that correlation is kind of um, is kind of good, and I, and I do think that that adds at least that history at least adds adds something yeah. to the to the validity. One of the ways of, I did. But but yeah. but you know, but my friend Martin Rees is totally opposed to the Nobel Prize. And, oh, I know he hates it. Yeah, well, he I mean, you know, I mean, he's yeah. right now that this notion of three people is just kind of silly in science. Well, yeah, all the laureates rail against that that i've interviewed well after they win (laughs) it's easy it's easy anyway i know like i don't see you like turning it down you know all the Nobel prizes except for uh chemistry and physics have been rejected by at least one yeah no i wouldn't i'd take the templeton prize if they gave it to me i'd take the money and then i and i badmouth (laughs) the prize but i take the money 
That's I mean, what I say. I say, if you want to find out if Keating's a hypocrite, just get me the Nobel Prize and see if I turn it down. Yeah. Uh, but but turning now to that topic and, and also your celebrity, your prolific uh, following Twitter elsewhere, you get half a million or so mm-hmm. followers, et cetera. Um, you know, there's a line in uh, Animal Farm where the pig Fix. talks to Benjamin the donkey. Mm-hmm. And the pig says, um, Ben, you got this long tail. It's so beautiful. You're so lucky. And Benjamin the donkey says, yeah, the good Lord gave me a tail to swat away the flies. But to be honest, I'd rather not have the flies and not need the tail. (laughs) Do you want, do you you wish you had a pig-like tail (laughs) or or, uh, do you wish you didn't need a a tail uh, that you have Uh, or, you know, the kind of fame, attention, celebrity, criticism? It's, it, look, it's, first of all, It happens, right? So it's just see to me that, I mean, there are good things and there are bad things. And I've gotten to do many things that I would never have been able to do otherwise. I mean, tremendous, and including many of the people I know that I would never know otherwise. So it's from a personal perspective, it's been wonderful. Um, especially in modern times, if you have any celebrity, it, it's, it's, it, it's also awful. Um, mm-hmm. I would like to think... that I wasn't driven by that, but I am also realistic enough to know that, that I probably, you know, at some level probably craved some, some attention. Um, Mm -hmm. we all do, but I, you know, so, so I know, but I think that I like to think I did what I, I've done what I've done because I think it's worth doing. And I've been on the whole, I would say I've been pleased by, the opportunities that I've had. And moreover, it's not a choice. I guess that's the bottom line. I did what I've done, not because I chose to do it. I didn't have a choice. Mm-hmm. I, 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 just like I bounced around in physics, I'm, I'm interested in a lot of different things. And I'm not, from a personal perspective, what a, a I guess a traditional academic in that sense. Academia itself has never been the, been enough to lure my soul interests. And so, in fact, when I, one of the reasons I, you know, when I told about physics and philosophy, I, one of the reasons I hesitated about doing a PhD in physics was because I'm very political and I'm very interested in people and, and the kind of physics I was interested in had nothing to do with people. Mm-hmm. And it turned out I was, but there was no plan. It turned out I was able to mesh those two things, my interest in science, my interest in people, because of the popularizations I got involved in. But it wasn't there are some people I know who are very systematic my, uh, in this regard. My friend um, Neil deGrasse Tyson is incredibly systematic. His whole life, he knew what he wanted, where, what yeah. he wanted to achieve, and what he had to do to achieve it. And in my case, I just basically it's an accident. But I knew I do know that if I I didn't really have a choice. I think if I hadn't been writing and speaking, I probably wouldn't have been have been able to focus on physics. And if I hadn't been able to do physics well enough to be able to achieve some level of of whatever the word is credibility i guess mm-hmm. um then i wouldn't have had the opportunity to to do the writing and speaking so i think it it wasn't a choice anyway yeah. 
And there are a lot of people that, you know, whenever I want to damn one of my guests with faint praise, you know, cause got some new theory about something, I'll say, they know the history of physics really well. Like, <laughs> cause you can get away with a lot if you just like spew, you know, kind of historical platitudes and then throw in a, an equation or two. Uh, but you know, they, but, you you know, know by the, impact, I'm going to interrupt you again. I, one of the reasons I love writing books and I've written a lot and I guess I'm on my 12th yeah. now, but, um, mm -hmm. is, is Show that your hands? Show me your hands, Lawrence. What are you writing now? I think I, you're writing something I, right I, now. I, I, I am, but I can't. I can't show you my hands because I'll. I, I, it's like poker. Um, but uh, but um, one of the things I like about it is that I is is that well, I learn a tremendous amount, but I also yeah. learn history because you can spout. In fact, just this morning when I was writing, working on a new book, actually, I I um, I, I I read something I wrote and I and I said, is that really how it happened? And then I started to go back and discovered what I've always said about it is totally wrong and. Mm -hmm. And, and so when you put it on paper, at least when I do, I don't know about other people, it seems it has a level of seriousness, which it doesn't have when you're just lecturing or talking. And mm -hmm. so I've been able to learn a tremendous amount of history, um, just by, by writing about it, because, uh, then if you write it about it, it's like teaching. I mean, if you write about it, then you have to learn it. Yeah. But I think the contrast with what you do and what I try to do is, you know, there's different types of content creators and there are those that document what other people have done. Then there are people that document what they themselves have done. I think the latter is always more interesting to say, you know, like even to expose your own warts and failures and flaws mm -hmm. and your thinking process and the wrong turns, because that's the problem, I think. And I'm going to get off the Nobel Prize, I promise. But that we present, you know, physics as done by Nobel Prize. I mean, my freshman lab classes are, you know, for them or, you know, Nobel Prize winning experiment. I used to do at, at Case Western, uh -huh. I would do the Michelson-Morley experiment. And, and one day I did and the by Cavendish By the way, I'm experiment. always pleased to say I had the chair that Michelson had when I was- uh, Oh, wow. Anyway. Oh, that's, that's okay. great. You know, Sean Carroll's got the that. desk that Feynman had. Uh, so uh, for other guests on the book. But I do say, you know, it kind of distorts the way that history is done. It's not written only, like, it distorts the physics process. It doesn't distort history. It's not lying. It's just- that's not the way science uh, proceeds. It proceeds via millions of wrong turns. And then finally, there's a path that, that works the right way. But I want to stick By on the way, the Simon probably didn't work at his desk, so it's okay. That's right. The strip club around the corner. Well, anywhere else, but this desk. So it doesn't really matter. <laughs> anyway, what was that going Okay. On? I want to turn now to um, meta scientific questions. And in particular, and one of my favorite books, by the way, is my book on Feynman. I, Quantum so, Man. Yeah. yeah I'm going to put a link to it. I worked very yeah, hard on that book. book and, 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 and actually, you know what? Honest, if you're a member of Audible, you can download that book for free. So that that is a free book that you can get for, if you're an Audible member. So I can listen to it again. And I have oh, copies good. of it. Oh, good. I can download it here. and listen to it. <laughs> when you were here, uh, you signed many copies of it uh, for my undergraduate who got the highest score in my cosmology class. So I gave away one of those and I kept one with your signature on it in the corner over here in Jeffrey Burbage's old office. Oh, um, that's nice. It was a labor of love and... and um... It was a and you joy met him. There's a famous picture of him yeah. with you uh, yeah, yeah. chatting. But, I don't yeah, but yeah, but, but you right. had long sideburns. You had mutton chops, I think, at the time. Uh, well, I had long so, hair, very yeah. long hair. I was young. Anyway, so uh, the next kind of pivot, if you have time, uh, I know. Uh, uh, you know, yeah. I can keep talking all day, as you know. I'm a New Yorker, yeah. so. Uh, but but well, I want to so ask I. you mm -hmm. certainly questions from my audience. I've got uh, about 13 questions in my audience. But before I go there, I want to talk about. 
uh, something, a term that I believe you coined called the ideological corruption of science. Uh-huh. And I want to, I want to be, uh, you know, kind of steel man against that. So I'm at UC San Diego, uh-huh. which is the home of uh, the late, great Maria Gephardt Mayer, uh-huh. who when she, when she won the Nobel Prize in 1963, mm-hmm. the La Jolla, or sorry, the San Diego Evening Tribune ran the following he- uh, headline, San Diego mother wins Nobel Prize. And that's really funny <laughs> until we realized that Andrew Lang's, uh, you know, widow, ex-wife, um, Frances Arnold, when she won the 2018 Nobel Prize, the initial headline on JPL, I tweeted out and she responded to it uh, last week, was um, uh, mother of JPL flight tech uh, wins uh, Nobel Prize in chemistry. <laughs> she was laughing about it. She liked it because it gave credit to her son. Anyway, um, I'm here at UCSD. We only have our physics department named after Maria Gephardt Mayer because Johns Hopkins was too uh, was too uh, sexist to give it to her. And they would only give a position to her husband. And so we uh, we said we give a position to you, Maria, and your husband. And he kind of came along as a spousal hire. Sure, which happens a um, lot nowadays. Mm-hmm. And back in the day, of course, you know, Einstein was forbidden for winning a Nobel Prize. When I hear uh, folks like Heather McDonald say on this podcast, you know, what do you think that like uh, physics is systemically racist? There are no Nobel Prize winners because systemic racism exists in the Nobel Academy. I said, Heather, do you think physics is time translation invariant? In other words, do you think the greatest minds of human history would have been the greatest minds in any other generation? And she said, yeah. And I said, well, a hundred years ago, Einstein, there was uh, meetings uh, by uh, folks like uh, the Aryan chief of physics, mm-hmm. uh, you know, uh, Bert, uh, Leonard and others that said, no way in hell is Einstein getting a Nobel Prize and only is getting it if he does something related to non-Jewish physics. So I want to ask you, Lawrence, what makes you think that nowadays, not just the Nobel Prize, but hiring faculty decisions, tenure decisions, postdocs, graduate students, all the way up the gated, inter, uh, you know, the kind of academic hunger games that I call it. Um, what makes you think that we're so meritocratic and that that's actually the best way to go about things? Well, well, because again, I, I like, I'm an empiricist and Einstein, um, you, you know, you know who Einstein was, right? You, you actually talk about him, you have a puppet and all the rest, in spite of the fact that he was a Jewish physicist who, who, um, who, uh, uh, had problems at the time. And the reason was his work, uh, ultimately he was able to, he and his work overcame it because that's the way science works because, because the, uh, science is a meritocracy. The problem I have is that of course there are always biases at any given time. And, and you're absolutely right. There's a time, the world is not time translation invariant, but, but I find it interesting because I think in a piece, I think, I don't know if I wrote it. I guess that I probably, in that piece for the Wall Street Journal I wrote, I don't think I talked about it there. I think I t- may have talked about it in a companion piece for Quillette because it was I was allowed to have longer mm-hmm. space. But um, when people talk about systemic racism, first of all, I've been chair, I mean, I've been a chair of a physics department. I've been, a, I've been, I've been in physics departments and involved in hiring for a long time, to- long enough time to know that, um, that if anything, I, it's quite the opposite. I mean, I, I the craziness of uh, of of even the defining the way it was. I talk about in one of the, my 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 um, articles that I when I was chair of physics, I tried to hire a really good black physicist. who was someone I know and respect. who's a condensed matter physicist from uh, University of Illinois uh, at Urbana who was tenured, and he mm-hmm. wanted to come. Um, his wife was going to come to case actually as, uh, and and so he was going to be a trailing spouse. And I mm-hmm. desperately tried to hire him and, and was not able to because he wasn't a minority. 
He wasn't. Mm-hmm. He was. He was from. He was from uh, Bahamas. I think he was. He was not African American, mm-hmm. and um, and so that arbitrary definition was just ridiculous. But but the the example I used about what, about this problem of of claiming systemic racism and 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 how and how to resolve it was that was the anti semitism of of the scientific community, which not only Einstein dealt with, but Feynman had to deal with. And I use the example yeah. of Feynman. Feynman was applied to graduate school at Princeton and nearly didn't get in because the, basically the head of the physics department said, you know, how Jewish is he? Yeah, exactly. And, 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 and talked to the chairman of the physics department at MIT who basically said, he's not very Jewish, you know, and in looks or in, in, you know, whatever. And so he, he, they allowed him in. Okay. But what happened then? Okay. They, they didn't have to do a quota for Jews, what happened is Feynman became the best, one of the best scientists of his kind. And then you have the next generation. You have Steve Weinberg and Shelley Glashow. And what happened was that that the Jews who came into physics, not all of them, but some of them became the, the, the excelled and became the leading physicists of their day. And that anti-Semitism just went away because of the quality of their work. It was the quality of their work and the quality of their intellects that 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 allowed them to to overcome what were real institutional prejudices at the time. Institutional prejudices, which I would say are much more explicit than any claimed institutional prejudices against race right now. Okay, mm-hmm. I, I I've I cannot imagine, nor would I have I ever seen anyone saying. You know, we can't have that person because they're black. It's it's just not it's just not the way. Moreover, while anti-Semitism was true in academia, it, it was true in society. Racism is absolutely true in in in, in society as and has been in the, as a as a part of America since its since its creation, and it's a reality. But the way to cure any quote problems of diversity is not to cure them at the level of a professor. That's just too late because again, and Heather, I don't know whether Heather's talked about this, but I know other people have the people you're, you're hiring are already very privileged in general. Most of them have gone to first rate undergraduate schools and graduate schools and, and, and it's not really diverse. Okay. Where you have to, where we have to confront problems of diversity and inequity is at a, is at the social level. Is that I I lived in Cleveland. You you were there as an graduate, but I, and Cleveland was a was a was a travesty when you were there and when I came there. The inner city of Cleveland was a problem. And I went into inner city schools in Cleveland. My my wife at the time worked volunteered in them, and I saw that the the what these young kids had to overcome. Cleveland didn't have a, a, a tax base, so these kids in the schools weren't getting textbooks. So I, when I was chair of the physics department, I we I made a point of saying, okay, there was a school for the arts right next door, which which did serve a lot of inner city kids. We do, we donated all of our old physics equipment to them because they didn't have enough money to buy for even to have a, a science lab in that school. And so these that's where you have to deal with the problems to try and overcome what may look like a demographic uh, uh, inequity or democratic uh, incompatibility. But to, but but it's so ridiculous to say 
of America's blacks. Therefore, we have to have 13% blacks in the physics department. Um, and, and it, you know, that because where are you going to stop? You can say, well, how many, what's the percentage of redheads? What's the percentage of people who are taller than average? If you really think those things are significant, and, and, and I would argue that what Martin Luther King said is much more important to me, the quality of intellect. And mm-hmm. so I think that this notion that that there's systemic racism, first of all, it, it flies in the face of everything I have observed. And uh, let me, and you know, people are going to say, well, look, my supervisor is black. Let me make that clear. My graduate supervisor was black. So I've, I've witnessed, and I've, and when I was a graduate student in Boston, I remember I was going to, I was going to move into an area uh, at Boston, uh, Bunker Hill, I guess. And he said to me, you know, if you move there, I won't be able to come visit you. And it really, you know, because Boston, Boston mm. was incredibly racist and maybe still is, but was incredibly racist at the time. And so I've seen, it's not as if I, 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 I'm ignorant in, in, uh, of this. I've been involved at every stage of university levels. And this notion of systemic racism is just nonsense. Well, it's also, a, uh, there's a natural time lag in, in that it may not be racist now, and it, and it may have been racist in the uh, past or more racist. Let me, let me go back to your favorite subject, the Nobel Prize. Yeah. Okay. Um, when I was at the Nobel Prize ceremonies, what the Nobel, and, and, I, and I'm sure they're not standing by this now, but I wish they were. I was so impressed because the, at the beginning of the ceremony, there was a woman, one woman on the stage, one woman who won the Nobel Prize. And, and, and the head of the Nobel Committee said, you know, you'll notice that there's one woman uh, winning the prize, okay? We hope that that will change. But Nobel Prizes are generally given for work that's 30 or 40 years old, whether you like it or not. And, and like it or not, that, that's the way, you know, there were very few women in these areas. We hope that 40 years from now, There'll be as many women as men on this stage, but we're not going to impose that now because there is a time lag. And that's the point. Um, uh, there will be, as, as in each, it's as, as each barrier gets broken, as, as, as you overcome social inequities, though, those will feed into the system. But again, uh, and yeah, here's where I'll get hate letters. Uh, well, I get them anyway. Um, uh, maybe you'll get them now too, but, um, uh, you know, when, when people say, look, when I look at, 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 at gender in, in, in academia, and again, I, I was chair, I would hired the first w- women in the physics department at, when I was chair at, at, at case. And, um, uh, but when people say, well, look, there's more women at the assistant professor level and not as many at the full professor level. And you say to yourself, well, why is that? Mm-hmm. One of the reasons is there weren't many women on the faculty, and there weren't many women in that stream before. And and to get to the full professor level, you have to have been assistant professor. But so you would expect in an evolving situation to have a better demographic at the assistant professor level than you have at the full professor level because things change. And 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 that's but 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 somehow to say no no we need we need we need to look we need to bean count at the at the full professor level because it's not the same as it is at the, at the junior faculty level, is yeah. just to misunderstand how academia works. And I, I often feel like there's this tautological, again, Ouroboros issue, you know, with Ibrahim X. Kendi and, and mm. to be anti-racist. And, and, you know, one of the things you probably don't miss about academia is that, you know, how much of our time is dedicated to 
the unfalsifiable uh, accusation yeah. that we are racist. And and I, you know, I've had uh, eight black scientists, and 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 I don't have them on because they're black, Lawrence. I have them because they're awesome scientists, well, and I want to talk to them. As I said, I don't have anybody on that I don't want have something that I want to learn from mm-hmm. and and converse about. And I'm, so it, it's done about. And, and we no, point it's out, academia. And and look, your- I'm so happy to have retired because. I really do think in the United States, academia is largely a lost cause right now. The quality- well, I want to ask you about that. Quality, you know, and it's, it's just going to, compared to the rest of the world, is going to continue, I think, to be challenged. Let me put it that the way. The one thing you know, I do love about academia is not only for me, but for my children and my and my wife, we get exposed. I mean, I had students, Lawrence, from Uganda, Saudi Arabia, yeah, yeah, uh, every continent, including Antarctica, which mm. I don't know if you had any students from Antarctica. But, uh, but the point being that- Well, you didn't have any students diverse. that grew up in Antarctica, I'll tell you that. Okay. I have one that might have been conceived on Antarctica. Well, that's I'm a not going to talk about that. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's, talk about that things. may have happened, but <laughs> uh, but you know, certainly in experimental physics, uh, you know, I would love nothing better than to discover an island that Harvard hasn't discovered. You know, where there are African uh, American citizens. You know, well, that's, uh, that's why. That's why. That's why United States. I used to. I've written about this in a different context when I've written about politics to the when people talked about when people talk about immigrants and immigration. Uh, I, I, the, I, when I've written to try and encourage and not discourage them from allowing Chinese or other graduate students to come to this country, mm-hmm. and I'm not the only one who's done it, but you know, we the reason the United States continues to, uh, uh, for the moment, to, to be dominant in many areas of science is because we're able to recruit the best young people from around the world, some of mm-hmm. whom stay in the United States, and and. And uh, and some of them go back to their countries and do and do good things and and when that stops, then and when when they go to other places and I can see it's happening now already, um, the prim- primacy of the United States will 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 decline because so it's only been both the gross national product and the quality of American ed- educational institutions and research institutions has only been possible because it could, if you want to use your term poach, if it could, it, because it could re- attract the best young people from around the world, some of whom stay. Yeah. I saw, you know, a recent post from, I think it was from Cambridge, you know, university and it was, uh, you know, taking Newton, you know, not calling them Newton's laws and, you know, how do you teach them? And then, and then they were showing in, in Beijing, you know, here's like, here's your Isaac Newton's laws of the universal gravity. Or my favorite thing nowadays is, uh, you know, two plus two equals uh, five can be correct because the notion of right or wrong is somehow yeah, right. I've written, I've written think, about that. Is Yeah. White Lawrence, supremacy. You, you know this as well as anybody. You're in California. Nigeria, that's where they're talking about it. In fact, by the way, that's exactly. where. And yeah. getting rid of calculus and getting. And getting rid of advanced well. placement, uh, you know, AP classes because they're inequitable. It's just yep. ridiculous. No, I agree. And and that's why, you know, you're kind of a mystery to me because, uh, but I do want to say, you know, as well as I do that some of our best students that we've encountered come from, say, uh, from Nigeria. I've had yeah. phenomenal, not one university, I looked at this, not one math department in Nigeria teaches anything other than two plus two equals four. Yeah. So in what sense is it? And anyway, I would love the one question, if I could ask Ibrahim X. Kendi one question, it would be, why are you an anti-Semite? You know, why, why are you not doing anti-anti-Semitism? Actually, I'd ask him, why are you a racist is what I'd ask. (laughs) (laughs) No, he'd say he's not because he's doing anti-racism. No, no, he's He's a racist. He's not doing anti-anti-Semitism. He's definitely not doing anything. No, no, you're absolutely right. When it comes to Judaism, that's, I mean, I have to say this. I've never, I really identified as being Jewish until recently Mm -hmm. because I'm, because I have a well-known atheist among other things and Judaism largely as means very little to me. Sorry, because I know you're more, more religious than me, but, but because of the, the anti-Semitism, and I've seen it happening with me now too, but because of the anti-Semitism that's happening 
I suddenly want to identify more as being Jewish because of mm -hmm. just my natural contrarian tendency. Mm -hmm. I want to I want to talk about your article, which was the ideological corruption of science is the headline in the Wall Street Journal. And you open up by talking about the American Physical Society, who is whose president is now my good friend, uh, Sylvester James Gates, yeah, who I've known, uh, who not only has been on my podcast, but his daughter's been on my podcast. She's the second ever African-American female to graduate from Harvard uh, University, a place you were a fellow. You at, mean in physics, not 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 to graduate physics. from Harvard in physics, PhD in physics, yeah, 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 yeah. PhD yeah. physics, African-American woman. I've known. And, I I knew, Jim, I knew Jim Gates, by the way, when I was a student. And so it was, when I, he, he was at Harvard and I was at MIT and then we were at Harvard uh, in the Society of Fellows. So I've so known him for a long this, time. You wrote this uh, in 2020 and in the summer, you know, following the George Floyd killing, et cetera. And the title of a video kind of above it is Opinion, The Left Consumes the Left. So everything you're talking about, you know, if, if I just, you know, covered up your name and your Twitter mm -hmm. profile and, and some of your past interviews... Um, you know, people think you're like a rabid, you know, right winger or, you know, conservative now, like everything I you're mean, uh, aligned with and people like Peter Bogosian, who's been a guest on the mm -hmm. podcast and as a friend and, and Noam Chomsky, you had a conversation with Noam, uh, three weeks ago on origins podcast. That was just, you know, really shocking, terrifying, but it's like, Noam, I, I didn't you call the Republican party, the greatest terrorist organization <laughs> on earth? You know, it's like, and I'll talk to anyone. No, I've been called a right wing pundit now, which breaks me up as a, as someone who's always thought of himself as incredibly left wing. And I've had on my show, I've had Ben Shapiro and Michael Knowles, probably people you don't care so much for. I had no, no, I, I, no. Well, I mean, no, I, I'm become much older and more tolerant as time goes on. <laughs> I want to ask you about Judaism because you brought it up, and I'm going to ask about it. Um, I often use you, and I with with the utmost respect, Lawrence. I always say, you know, Lawrence uh, is so bright, uh, but you know, when it comes to Judaism, and and I haven't pointed out, you know, I don't I don't send you typos and things like that yeah. that I that I find. But but you know, if Lawrence, if my 10 year old comes up to you and says, Lawrence, you know, I, I found that a professor Krause, he'd be very respectful. I'm like okay. his father. But anyway, he said, Dr. Krause, you know, you are amazing. Um, but you know, there's logical flaws throughout a universe from nothing and are, you know, philosophical or even mathematical. You, know, you say, get out of here. You, you know, 10, 12 year old kid. You don't know anything. You don't have enough experience what, generating wisdom. You might have Wikipedia. Well, you I don't think you'd say that, especially with a 10-year-old. I'd want to hear what they have to say. It's the adults no, no, I'm not so interested my in. My 10-year-old will, will blow your mind. <laughs> okay, but, but fine. The, I, I love when kids come up with things. As I but, say, it's the adults that, that bother me. Yeah, the, the, the thing I'm getting at, Lawrence, is that um, I, I want to know if you're anti-religion, if you're anti-Christian. I don't really care so much about that, but the point I'm, I'm trying not, to make I'm is- I'm not anti any of that. I'm just, uh, I'm an apatheist. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, right, I, so, if God means nothing to me. Right. So, and, and you talked about this with Woody Allen on your show, yeah. and, and he's famous for saying, you know, I'll settle for a divine sneeze. Yeah. My point that I'm trying to make is that um, your education in Judaism, to the extent you had it, now, I was bar mitzvah. I didn't have, yeah, you were bar mitzvah. I was just going to say that. Okay. And that was probably the culmination of your, Ju I wasn't bar mitzvah. That's when I, I, be, I, 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 oh, you weren't. Okay. See, for me, I wasn't. I, I was an I, altar boy. I want you to know that that turned me into an anti Semite for a while. Yeah. A bar mitzvah. Okay. I, exactly. It, yeah, the whole experience was so disgusting that I, 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 I wanted nothing to do with it for the longest time. As it did for my father, who was a militant atheist himself, a term you, you coined, a term I think you coined, mm -hmm. um, and are proud of. But, but the point I'm no, trying no, to make I, is that I, no, I've argued that militant atheism is a is a is a um, oxymoron. What does it mean? You, okay. you throw papers at buildings? I don't know what it means. You anyway, but okay, <laughs> militant pacifist. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Anyway, uh, but the, but the point is, um, you know, your formal edu education, you know, might have culminated with your bar mitzvah. Probably certainly did. I didn't know that you were turned off from your bar uh, from Judaism at that point. But in other words, 
there, what about, and one of my audience is asking this question, what about Jesus, the most famous Jew who ever lived? Are there things about Judaic faith um, that are emulatable? Are there principles? Are there, are, are there, is there redeemable aspects of it? Or is, is the entirety of it, of it shaped by this experience that you had as a young, as a 12 year old, 13 year old? No, look, first of all, I was growing up to revere this. My mother convinced me that being Jewish involved questioning and wanting to learn and all these things, which I, you know, I buy into that somewhat. I mean, I, I don't yeah. think it's certainly unique, but there is a, but I think the notion of questioning, the Talmudic notion of questioning mm-hmm is wonderful because for me questioning is everything. So I'd say if you if I had to pick one sort of thing that I really do think is culturally Jewish that is enviable or mm-hmm. that 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 derives from the religiosity which isn't enviable, it's the Talmudic basis of questioning, of trying mm-hmm. to work through through questioning because that's the basis of understanding. So I would say that that's a very noble thing. But mm-hmm. but the rest of the the the, the re- whole religious basis of Judaism I find completely ridiculous, and and the notion, um, so and but you know but having said that I will point out that I'm no expert, um, yeah. And in fact I may know as much about Islam as I do about Judaism in some ways. I was just gonna say you know my um, do you know uh, I, I call you when you're not around uh, behind your back I call you a devout Israelite. Because uh, not a Jew, but you know what the word Israel means in Hebrew. Uh, you know? What does it mean? It means fights against God. <laughs> okay, yeah. Because Jacob, uh, whose name would later yeah. change to Israel. Anyway, it, the notion, and it's uh, the opposite is Islam. What does Islam mean in uh, in Arabic? It means submission. So they're con- completely diametrically opposed. One is submit to God uh, completely, and the other one is to fight and wrestle with, as the Talmud does. Yeah, and you know, well, in principle, yeah. But let's not pretend that the Old Testament isn't as violent and horrific as 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 the Quran. I mean, stone your children if they disobey you. I mean, it sounds nice, but well, the, I, the difference is, and I would say that, and I've again, it's not a very profound or deep intellectual study that I've done in this regard, but. The difference is that Islam is 600 years younger. So 600 years ago, they might take that nonsense literally and, and do the worst possible things. And now we say, yeah, but okay, we don't, you know, that's okay, but we don't buy that stuff. It's, we have a kinder, gentler religion now. And so I just think part of the problem of Islam is that they're in the phase of, of taking all the nonsense literally Including well, the invective, let me, let me just including say, the hatred yeah. and invective. That's that's well, it, let me just that's say about the, endemic the, to all sacred texts, including the New Testament. I would argue. Let me let me just say about the stoning. Um, so that's very interesting, and I wasn't planning to go in this way, but I do want to point out that no. So what the stoning says is that the parents may not stone their kids, and they say, "Oh, big deal." But back in the ancient world, as is in the current modern world. The notion of honor killings was pr- was predominant. Yeah. For the first time in human history, Judaism took the power to kill your child out of the parent's hand. Now, the parent has to take the child to the Sanhedrin, then the Sanhedrin ki- – there's no record. And you know the Talmud, the, yeah. the Germans and the Assyrians, everybody has used the Talmud to skewer the Jews because there's no book that's more anti-Semitic than, than the Talmud, <laughs> you know, saying how awful we are and how bad. Mm-hmm. But anyway, Lawrence, the point is and, – and same with like divorce. Like people think of the treatment of women and it's true. They had, but there was the first time in human history when a woman could be an agent and be self-deterministic and could get a divorce. And if the well, man did not give her a divorce, he would get stoned. Well, it's matriarchal. So it was, well, they were smart. I mean, it was very what matriarchal. Is that? Well, that, well, there's a good reason to be matriarchal. I mean, the one thing about the Jewish religion is it, that I've always um, um, I, 
enjoyed is that, or at least appreciated, it seemed to me, not, or at least the culture, is that it's based on thinking intelligently about how to get around things. And, 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 um, and it's smart to be matriarchal because, you know, 10% of fathers aren't the fathers and, right. and you know who the mother is. And, yeah, yeah, uh, um, but, but look, I'm not saying that, look, these were ignorant pets. These were the, the, by, to the extent that the Bible was written in any time, it was a time of a ignorance and b violence and hatred and and it's characteristic of that so having understanding that is not to demean the jewish religion which arose out of it it's just to say it came i mean that we shouldn't uh, we shouldn't revere these ancient books that are that are um really written at times that happily science and other things have allowed us to overcome Although I think Shakespeare is quite excellent, and those times were times of endemic poverty and ignorance and the illiteracy. We, and we, we, we look for the, what we do, and I've always been a student of history. And, mm-hmm. and, and, and actually, anyway, first book I was working on was a history book. But the, the, um, we should appreciate and understand the history and, 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 and the wisdom of the fact because because basically things don't change the more things change the more they stay the same so right. it's worth looking for the gems of wisdom in in shakespeare and it's worth looking in the bible for 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 things that are that are are gems of wisdom about the human condition perhaps yeah but it's not yeah. worth ca- claiming it's a it's it's a it's a sacred text any more than it is to say shakespeare's because some of his plays stink okay yeah. no that is, and mm-hmm. and um and so it's not, it's not a sacredness is an anathema to, to, and that's the, that's the problem. And, 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 and so I guess I grew up in an area, you see, I was grew up in an area that was completely Jewish. I didn't know there were, mm-hmm. I thought Jews were the majority until I was 12. And then I moved to an area where there are no <laughs> Jews. And, and, but I was always brought up with this kind of a feet view that somehow it's something special and wonderful about Judaism. And I guess I try to rebel about that. Of course, I appreciate the, the, the the many of the cultural aspects but mm-hmm. but i also understand that there are other equally uh, um, laudable cultural aspects that have nothing to do with judaism no i just i just always do rail against i mean there there is I, my dream is to, be, to adopt the havrusa mechanism with you uh, where the two partners sit down and they take one sugia one passage one equation basically and they just beat each other up about it. Mm-hmm. And the goal is not to look during the Holocaust. There's famous stories that's, about rap, that, modern rap. By the way, that's the way I have always preceded my research with my students. That's exact. Yeah. And the way it was when I was with Shelley Glasha, when I was at Harvard, Yeah, you sit in a room and you argue and you complain and you, and, 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 you, and that's fun. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and there is wisdom. I asked Andrewian, as I'm going to ask you in about 10 minutes, you know, kind right. of the uh, immortal words of wisdom that she wishes humanity would adopt. And she quoted from the book of Mika and she's a devout atheist, as you know, and Carl Sagan, yeah. a humanist rather. I know her. And she quoted, and except for, you know, act justly, love mercy. And, uh, and that's it. The last word for those of you who don't know in, in Mika is walk humbly with your God. But anyway, I do want to ask some questions from my audience. But before I do that, so anyway, my dream, if we are together, is to take you to a Shabbat dinner because it's almost impossible not to enjoy that. And I, second of I, all, I've been to many study Shabbat the Talmud dinners. together. Yeah, my, yeah. My favorite taught when I when I was at, at MIT as a graduate student. I guess when I was alone and I thought, well, okay, I may as well explore my roots. I went to 
I went to a Passover Seder at mm-hmm. put on by the rabbi, one of the, whatever the official people are in 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 mm-hmm. in, 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 in at MIT. Um, uh, mm-hmm. I forget what that group is called, but anyway, um, Hillel, Hillel, that's right. Yeah. Um, and um, and it was it was a really enjoyable experience. One of the one of the one of the, my favorite things was the the, the detailed question of. Uh, you know, he held a wine glass. This isn't a wine glass. If I, I yeah. if this were empty, well, maybe no. Yeah. Well, maybe. Hold on. I got a so scotch bottle. You know this one from the. So, so the rabbi said, "Why, why do we hold the wine glass like this?" And everyone was discussing these guys. He said, "Because if you hold it like this, all the wine goes out." And I thought that that was <laughs> that was anyway. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Okay. Are, uh, that's right. Yeah, I mean, for me, it's it's much more practical. There's there's it's very hard to imagine that. You know, secular, and I've spoken at the Ethical Humanist Society of Chicago, which is one of the foremost and, oldest. And I've spoken at churches and 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 synagogues. The one synagogue I, I was wouldn't be wasn't allowed to speak at was an Orthodox synagogue in Cleveland because I indicated to them that I was going to say the world was more than six thousand years old, and they wouldn't let me speak. But anyway, yeah. yeah so I yeah I personally don't know, I, I, and I believe that. But but mm. the but the rabbis that I traffic in and, and yeah, of course are, yeah you know, this is not something, you know, that, you know, because we can get into that on our next conversation. Okay, but now, sorry, I'm distracting I want to first ask you about hype. So we talked about hype, but I want to ask you about um, artificial intelligence. The claim is that artificial intelligence is going to eventually produce, you know, artificial Galileo. And I've actually worked with, since I now have the text, all 1 million words of his dialogue in printed form, uh, for the first time to make the audiobook, I am going to uh, put it into GPT three and see if I can teach him QED or you know mm-hmm. uh, whatever. But but to just see what what will come out of it because I think it'll be interesting. But my my assumption is that be, just because uh, computers can beat any human at chess, it doesn't mean they can create the game of chess. In other words. Uh, they can't. They can solve a Rubik's cube. Can they invent a Rubik's cube? But in the essence of physics. The no, the claim is that it's just a you know Max Tegmark has written about this you know it's just a matter of time before we have artificial Feynman and I claim that will never happen because well, you know first of, the, of all you, yeah okay go on let me yeah, yeah. I, I was just gonna say the the uh, when Einstein do you know what Einstein called the happiest thought of his life not fantasy but the happiest thought of his life uh, Lawrence I I seem to remember it but remind me as I know since was that if you were in free fall you'd experience zero acceleration yeah yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. gravity would yeah, be equivalent yeah. to acceleration. Call that the ha- now. How can a computer, and that's what led to GR, you know, in some sense. Um, how can a computer a know what it feels to free fall? B oh. know what uh, know what happiness is in this context? And C, how can they take that intellectual leap? If you're just taking data from Newton and showed the perihelion of Mercury anomalously advances, how would you possibly get from that, you know, lacunae in the data? To a new way of thinking about a fundamental force. So those are my opinions. What do you think about? I think you're you're being short-sighted, but I also think these other Mm -hmm. people are being ridiculous. I mean, first of all, anytime you hear people predict things about things we don't know anything about, they call themselves futurists. Often, that's when those are people you shouldn't listen to. Um, (laughs) And um, almost invariably, they miss the important stuff. I mean, we were supposed to be in flying cars, you know, when in the 1950s, but when they talked about 2000, but they didn't talk about the internet. But um, but. uh, I think the w- w- what's clear is that um, you're 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 making presumptions based on the present of what um, of what mm-hmm. uh, well first of all we don't even know what intelligence is in some deep sense but but you're making the assumptions that you know I, I can't input all of the um, the sensory uh, uh, 
uh, data input that you'd feel in free fall and 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 you're so for me i see no barriers ultimately to what you would call a, uh, an artificial consciousness but it's not the problem with artificial intelligence is not artificial in any sense yeah it's 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 really mimicking in some way the intelligence that it's 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 creating a, a an electronic version of a, a system that arose haphazardly by biology, and 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 biology did it very effectively because it had a long time to do it. Um, uh, so I don't see any barriers to ultimately what you would call computers being conscious. I I ultimately don't see uh, what, what computer Feynman is not the way way of putting it. But what I, I, I am interested in in um, uh, a general artificial intelligence in 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 those using those language which I don't like, um, mm-hmm. precisely for the same reason I think that Feynman was, which is mm. I would like to know what an intelligent computer, what physics questions an intelligent computer would find interesting, and there's not it's not at all clear to me that they'd be the same questions. It's mm. to me it's just like wanting to know about an alien intelligence. I would love to have an alien intelligence because I'd like to learn a lot about what they've learned about the world and how they think about it because it would illuminate, presumably, potentially a completely different way of thinking about the world than I'm used to. So mm-hmm. I don't see it as, a, say, a threat in that sense, nor do I see it as a panacea. I see it, I think, in the long run as kind of inevitable, but not in any, but I mean long run. I don't think all of, AI is an area that's incredibly hyped. You're absolutely right. Computers compete people at chess, but they can't, but robots can't yet really effectively fold laundry. Um, mm-hmm. And and so, um, you know, it, it, this notion of, um, you know, uh, around the corner, it, it, that's going to happen, I think is ridiculous. But yeah. I, I personally don't see it as a, as a uh, problem. And, and the example, I wrote about this once in a, an article that, that um, was going to be in a book, but they removed it uh, on AI. Um, uh, a few years ago, um, that anyway, it doesn't matter where it was. Um, I'm interested, I find it fascinating that Plato and others going back to Plato and in full circle around the time that writing was first invented, totally decried writing because they said it would ruin storytelling. Mm. storytelling would be over because people wouldn't have memories they wouldn't be able to do this stuff and of course it didn't happen so what it did is it changed things and i think that as 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 computational systems become more capable in different areas um it will change things but i don't see um i i guess i don't see the same bear i think you're just imposing the present on the future who knows what the origins of creativity is, except it's making connections at some level between disparate things in some way. I don't see any barrier ultimately to a, a computer with sufficient sense input from a variety of things to be able to not understand what, what it, how happy it is to fall in the absence of gravity uh, 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 or, or even sense it in any sense that we sense it. Cause I was just listening to a, Actually, a wonderful. Uh, I like Bill Bryson a lot, and and I was listening to his book on the body, and he points out a very f- important fact that that we feel pain in the everywhere we f- we feel pain in the brain, <laughs> okay, yeah. the, not in the fingers, not when that ones that are being burned. It's in the brain that it's created, and mm. and it's 
and it's created because of a whole bunch of biochemical reactions that relate to sensory input. And I don't see that electrochemical reactions or electrical reactions related to similar sensory input can't create the same feelings in that artificial brain. But that's right. my opinion. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've thought about that. You know, if you want to teach them pain, you know, blow a capacitor here yeah. and, a, and a resistor well, well, there. Yeah, right? yeah. No, yeah, I mean, it's a mechanism that was developed. Yeah. And so why wouldn't they? I mean, they may not. Who knows? I mean, it's it's, it's this whole, it's this fundamental physical philosophical question, which none of us mm-hmm. can ever really answer, which is how mm-hmm. do I know that your pain is the same as my pain? How do yeah, I know exactly. that your green, even though I'm colorblind, that your green is the same as my green? And anyway. <laughs> I'm writing a new uh, a new book. What is it like to be Thomas Nagel <laughs> under the pseudonym A Bat? My nickname, my th- my name is going to be A Bat. Yeah. Okay, Lawrence, we've reached the lightning round. Yeah, okay. Uh, first, I'm going to ask you um, uh, some questions from my audience. Then the lightning round. Then we're going to close up. Good. With uh, I, my I, final... wife is going to be very angry because we were going to go All kayaking right, yeah, out, out at our, the river behind our house in a moment. All right. So, um, so this could be a lightning one word answer. Uh, is Jesus Christ a good role model from my, my viewer, Emmanuel Kant, Emmanuel Kant is my, wow. It's very, very, uh, wow. He's for a dead guy. He's very, very, uh, prolific, but, um, um, Jesus, a good role model worth emulating. He has, um, not particularly, no. I mean, okay. I mean, some of the things. Look, what I don't know what you mean, your role model. I think that that. Um, Whatever it means. No, yeah. I mean, he said certain things. It, well, he's purported to have said certain things that are that are certainly worth worth uh, appreciating and respecting. Um, um, and uh, but, yeah, no, I'm not. No, not particularly. Okay. Um, would you like to sit down and have a conversation with your fellow countryman Jordan Peterson? Oh yes, and I have, and I will. Okay. Yeah. Great. In fact, I have. In fact, for 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 this, I, I just had a long conversation with Jordan Peterson that's going to appear on his podcast uh, Monday, I think, and oh, great. he's going to be on mine. Yeah. Even oh, yeah, wonderful. Yeah, because I'm very become very magnanimous as I've gotten older. Yes, that's right. You've uh, you've mellowed, man. You've changed, yeah, yeah. man. Since you moved to Canada, yeah. the great mellow north. Well, uh, next question. Age will do it. Anyway, do you feel like it was fair fair of your assessors to fail you in your first PhD viva on the basis that he knew maths but not physics? This comes from Rajiv Ganjel. Um, he res- recently said, although it was traumatic, he learned a lesson. Oh, absolutely. Do you think it was? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. And 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 the it was incredibly important because I was because uh, physics is phenomena, and if you're not in touch with phenomena, you're not doing physics. Mm-hmm. Great. Uh, easy question from a uh, listener, AJ, uh, what happened before the big bang? Uh, my answer is, uh, potentially it's a bad question. Okay. Um, how can an average and, person- And for the reasons average- I said earlier, time may not have existed. Okay. So that's not a good question. Yeah. And the, and the uh, other answer is, I don't know, which is an answer mm-hmm. that we should all use more often to almost all questions. Sorry, go on. Um, should we trust the same government that makes us, uh, you know, has missed COVID at first, denied it, then has gone into complete, you know, opposite direction? Should we trust the same government that enacted various um, suppressive and also amplification of information? Should we trust them to tell us what to do when it comes to climate change? Which we didn't get to talk to, but we yeah, uh, you didn't in my new my new Maybe book. You didn't even pu- you didn't even plug I'm gonna it. Plug it. Um, I will but, plug but, it. I'll give away a copy. How look, about that? I'll no, but we didn't, we didn't sh- never trust anyone. No one. Mm-hmm. Look, that's the reason I wrote the book. Point is, mm. w- w- educate yourselves. 
at some level, and as a point of the book, almost anyone can understand the fundamental science behind climate change and the really basic predictions. It doesn't require supercomputers to understand the basic science behind climate change. And it's fascinating science. And my point, there's no policies recommendations in my book. The point is to say that that one that that policy first you have to understand reality and then you can decide a policy and so the point is that never obviously don't trust anyone try and um understand it and then impact on government because what governments never do is lead what they always do is follow and Mm -hmm. i learned that from noam chomsky when i was a graduate student about vietnam Uh, ultimately what governments will do how the government way governments respond to climate change will depend upon the public, and it will only be rational if the public has a rational, uh, uh, ultimately rationally demands policies. Okay. Anyway. Got it. Uh, next question uh, comes from Lucas Patterson, who asks, can we sacrifice our politicians to an active volcano to save ourselves from climate change? And if so, who would you choose? Active politician. It has to be an active well, politician, active volcano. Let me, let me just say this. Um, Politicians are politicians, and that's and 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 that, that that means they have very specific jobs, uh, and 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 uh, and of course, part of being a politician involves doing things that a lot of people would not want to do in order to get elected. But I will say this, and maybe because I'm influenced, because I was just speaking to a congressional aide the other day, who one of the things I'm very proud of is my foundation and I'm not profiting from this in case anyone figures out, but we just, mm-hmm. we sent copies of the book, physics of climate change yeah. to every member of Congress, um, mm-hmm. uh, raise money to do it. Um, and because why, because we want them to just, again, it's not, it's not a democratic issue. It's not a Republican issue. It's not a left or right issue. It's just a science. And then they can decide on policy. But, but I've testified before Congress uh, officially on one occasion, me and Buzz Aldrin many years ago on the future of space exploration. I've lectured to, I've, I've, I've given what, what I forget what they're called briefs before Congress and, and congratulations. Mm-hmm. And every time I do it, I come away more impressed with the people working hard on behalf of people than I am when I listen to the news or I watch the news. So I will mm-hmm. say that on the whole in Washington, there are many people and in Canada, in Ottawa and other places there are many people working very hard uh, on behalf of, of of what they think is right. And um, and so mm. let's just say that. That's helpful. And that reminds me of a joke. Uh, what's the opposite of the prose of something? The the, the poetry of something? No, the, the, the pro. <laughs> no, like no I, I know. When you said prose, <laughs> you didn't get my joke. Okay. okay. I got the prose. Okay. Anyway, what's the opposite of prose? What's the opposite of pro? We're finished. It's almost finished. Mm-hmm. What's the opposite of pro when somebody says you want the pros and the the cons, obviously. Right. So what's the opposite of progress? Congress. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. Yeah. Good. All right. Last couple of questions. I know you're busy. Um, apologize. Blame it all on me. Some, some. Can I tell Jewish now? I was going to tell you. I was going to, now I have to tell you my, my one joke too. Okay. Go for it. Cause it's a, it's related to your questions about Judaism and the questioning <laughs> thing. You probably know this joke about this, uh, grandmother takes her grandson to the beach. And um, he's sitting there and, and he's playing at the beach with his ball and a big wave comes up and, and swallows him and takes him out to the, and disappears. And she looks up, she goes, God, God, please. He's a wonderful young boy. He shouldn't end his life this way. Please, please don't, don't, don't kill him. The big wave comes back 
and lands him back on the beach. And she looks up and says, he had a hat. <laughs> anyway. All right, okay. Lawrence. Well, we have reached the end now. I have the final three questions. Okay. If you'll indulge and give me some of that good Christian forbearance that you're known for. Uh, and these in- involve uh, things uh, related to Arthur C. Clarke, who is the namesake mm-hmm. of the center, which I co-direct, that mm-hmm. hosted you many years ago. And uh, the first one is going to take us to the biblical age of 120. Mm-hmm. And it involves a so-called ethical, not material will, uh, but your ethical will. So Al- Alfred Nobel had partially established an ethical will by ensuring or hoping to enshrine that the benefit to mankind would be the greatest uh, you know, yeah. accomplishment of the laureates. So anyway, so he had one. The famous ones go back Jesus and, and, and Barack Obama wrote an ethical will. It's called a Zava'a in Hebrew. Anyway, what would you like to convey in wisdom or knowledge on ethical uh, imperatives when you spring forth this mortal coil at the biblical age that Moses achieved of 120 years? Uh, that's a question I can't answer. I don't really think in those terms. I, um, I, um, um, I have no, <laughs> um, I have no, I have no legacy, or if you want to, that I would want to leave other than the work that I've done during my life. That's all. Mm-hmm. Okay. Nothing. All right. Next question involves a monolith spotted in 2001, A Space Odyssey, which mm-hmm. is some kind of a time capsule. Yes. And it's, this question relates to Feynman's question of if in some cataclysm, all scientific knowledge would be destroyed and only one sentence passed on to the next generation of creatures, what statement would contain the most information in the fewest words. You wrote a book about it called Adam. That was his answer. What about humanity discoveries in physics is most impressive that you would use as sort of a talisman to put on a billion year long yeah. Arthur C. Clarke like time capsule? Okay. Let, let me, this is going to be a problem with all your questions. It's, it's a fundamental, it's a personality problem of mine. Maybe you can call it a character trait. I don't think hierarchically. I never have. So I don't mm-hmm. think of most this or most that. I like a lot of different things. So I, I rarely list my favorite okay, yeah, book, my favorite one. But but you know, so 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 to to pick one thing. Um, but what, you say what what thing would I put on a time capsule? What what piece of information about the physical universe do you feel encapsulates the most amount of information in sort of the most compact form, as Feynman said? Yeah, Feynman. Yeah, wrote about that at one point. What he put in. Uh, um, Adam. Yeah, yeah. Actually, I think I think let me. There's, I, I could have argued something else. Um, you know, I mm. might have said the sa- statement from Galileo where he says, "But yet it moves." Um, would, mm. would maybe be the would would because uh, from there you can build all of physics. So it's the it's the seed from which all of physics builds. So that's one thing I might say. But I think the other thing I would say, and I've written about this in, for undergraduates actually, um, is the, the Hubble constant, the expansionary, because basically. Every major feature of our universe comes from that one quantity. You can understand the age of the universe, almost everything from that one-dimensional quantity. So yeah. the expansion rate of the universe is, in my mind, the most important global quantity describing the universe. Okay. Excellent. All right. The last question, Lawrence, relates to the title of my podcast, and that is a saying of Arthur C. Clarke, which takes us backwards in time. He said, the only way of discovering the limits of the possible is to venture a little way past them into the impossible. And that's the origin of the name of this podcast. Mm. But I want to ask you, going back in time to a 20-year-old, 30-year-old Lawrence Krauss, is there any advice that you would give yourself to help you have courage and so forth to go into the impossible? 
Well, as I say, I mean, I'm, I, my job has been to think about the possibilities, which means to find out, what, you know, to turn the possible into the possible. So that's what I, my job has been that way. But the advice I'd give myself, and I, I tend to try not to give too much advice, um, would be the same advice I always give young people, which is don't let the bastards get you down. I think I had a, a t-shirt like that when I was a kid, except it was turkeys and mm -hmm. I was an elephant, but I didn't wear it because I got teased for being fat. Lawrence Krauss, director of the Origins Project Foundation, a nonprofit which can be accessed at the websites in the video description below or on the uh, text audio description. Also the proprietor of the Origins podcast. Uh, Lawrence has been fun. We should uh, catch up more often than every nine years. Yeah, wow. It's been, no, it was truly delightful. I wouldn't have spent two and a half hours with you if, if it hadn't been. And, and I, yeah, I'm, was, I'm uh, pleased that you did your homework, which is always, uh, to me, the first step of, uh, of quality. And so, but it was great. Yeah, I, I kind of miss you. I'd like to, yeah. So yeah, I should come That'd to, be fun. I, I should come up there. You're not allowed here right now because I know. you have to be quarantined like, like I am. Anyway. They're spiting us. Yeah. All right, Lawrence, okay. have a great day. Sorry I kept you so long. We'll probably break it into two episodes. Okay. Have a and wonderful wife, rest of your day. You'll have to apologize to my wife more than me. I, I will. Just send her my way. I haven't, we she haven't missed our opportunity. She can come San Diego too. Yeah, okay. What, tell you what, Lawrence, when she when you guys come and visit in January, I'll probably be able to make it up for, for, for that. Okay. okay. Okay, yeah. <laughs> okay, take care. Bye-bye. Be well. Okay. Thank you. Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Thanks for listening to part two of this special two-part episode of Into the Impossible. Please support the show by subscribing, rating, commenting, sharing, and leaving reviews. We love hearing from you. Watch our YouTube channel at Dr. Brian Keating. That's D-R Brian Keating. Follow Brian on Twitter and Medium and support us on Patreon at Dr. Brian Keating. For exclusive content, Sign up for Professor Keating's mailing list at briankeating.com. Into the Impossible is produced with the Arthur C. Clarke Center for Human Imagination in the Division of Physical Sciences at the University of California, San Diego. Produced by Brian Keating and Stuart Volko. Mm -hmm.